And again, Mad Men tips its hand by putting neck accessories. I know, as soon as I saw there the you mascot. go. Neck accessories around <laughs> males who act like idiots. See, uh, see Paul. Um, that's the tell. This guy's wearing an ascot. He's an idiot. You know it's true. A term coined in the late 1950s to describe the advertising executives of Madison Avenue. They coined it. Now let's get one thing straight. <clears throat> if High Life fails, it's your fault. Welcome to They Coined It. Hey, Roberta. What up, Dan? So, Roberta, you know that um, I picked up a guitar for the first time in my life. It's not quite my, I'll call it a COVID hobby, um, but I actually started it uh over the holidays in 2019, so just a few months before the whole world went to shit. My interest and enthusiasm far outruns my talent, but the the rabbit holes you can go down, right, just like anything else, you know, both in terms of lessons and learning stuff and technique, as well as um, just being able to watch clips of people you love whose music you love. And my, my taste runs, yes, Roberta. I'm Woman with a mask. Um, Roberta remind- in the third row. Go Remind ahead. me again, acoustic, electric? Acoustic, yeah, okay. all the way acoustic. Alrighty. And my taste runs towards classic rock. So I'm looking at uh, Neil Young and Van Morrison and whatever. So I um, got down this rabbit hole of Paul Simon, who's – and some of the stuff you look at and you can go, oh, I can bang out a couple rhythm strums here, you know, a Neil Young tune here and there. They're not all crazy. Some of them are amazingly – Simplistic, not so much with Paul uh, Simon. Simple, simple to learn. Paul Simon is it is like from literally from another planet, like absolutely from another universe in terms of how he plays guitar. It's stunning. Anyway, that's really not the point. All that is is an on ramp for me to say that I went down this rabbit hole of looking at Paul Simon on Dick Cavett and Paul Simon on the show and that show just from the past literally fifty years, and it's wonderful. And I came across a song that I, is, is a well-known song of his, but would not be one of the first five Paul Simon tunes that you would roll off your tongue if I asked you to name five Paul Simon tunes. But this song, I watched him play it when he, you know, when it first came out, which was like a mid-70s tune, all the way to playing it last year. Uh, it's called An American Tune. Oh, it's my favorite song. It's impossible oh, to play. Oh, yeah. Now, I that, mean, if we're, you're we're an way if past you're me, what I was you. able to play. Yeah, you but, can, no, that but, is my... An American tune, and and just listeners, if you sort of know Paul Simon, no, we don't mean America. No, no, right. We don't mean Kathy. No. You know, Kathy, I'm lost. I said that's that's a beautiful song. America might be one of the first five that you rolls off your tongue. Far, that's far right. more well known. An American tune is one of my very, very, very favorites. It's absolutely beautiful. It's it makes me cry. It then took on a next level of meaning for me after nine eleven. Absolutely, and I. Probably can't listen to it I was going to say, and you, it's, you, it would clearly take on a different meaning, as did, frankly, a lot of his tunes. America, which if you're really interested and you want to see an amazing version, David Bowie opened the city, the uh, concert for New York City in Madison Square Garden that was right after 9-11. Yeah. David Bowie opened with an amazing rendition of America. Anyway, also not my point. Really? But no, no, this is, and, and there is a, there is a, a, a Mad Men corollary here, which is, you know, Mad Men in a lot of ways is kind of how we got here, how we got to the country we have now in a lot of ways. It's a lot of what this podcast is about, frankly, is discussing such things. But the song itself, this American tune, 
he talks about it was written post Watergate. So it was definitely a kind of like, where are we as a country? Where are we going? Did we lose our way? I'm very weary of all this kinds of stuff. And I'm not going to get into the lyrics, but I'm surrounding the issue of the lyrics right now with, with some of that description. And all I have to say is I encourage our listeners, just if you have, if you're so inclined, look up this song. Why don't you why don't you pop in uh, a YouTube or two into our show notes? Let's we can, do that. We can do that. But frankly, I it's even more impactful when you when you find it yourself, frankly. So it's easy enough to put in show notes. But the experience of happening upon him playing it as a younger man and him playing this tune during a pandemic and everything that we're going through, I have to say, yeah, I I, I absolutely welled up a number of times watching him. This song absolutely could have been written a month ago. And um, I say that because, A, it is a well-known tune, so so folks might know it, and I'm sure a lot of folks do, but I'm sure a lot do not. Many do not, because it's just not one of his most prom. It's not Call Me Al or any of that. Going down this little rabbit hole and experience watching him play it as a younger guy and then and then now was was pretty emotional. I, 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 I This um, is just something that I think, and I think resonates with our show quite a bit. I don't mean that, I don't mean uh, they coined it. I mean, I mean Mad Men, because he really is talking about um, losing your way and uncertainty when that happens. And it's just a quick thought for for our listeners. I think I think they might get something out of. So we'll link to it, but also I encourage you to explore. Poke around and find other versions of it. I would like to say that I hope that what we bring, as they coined it, is something. You know, I take I take a lot of pride in what we're doing here and in how we elevate the conversation about the show to the level that the show itself has earned. And I think we, when there was a blog, we did that better than anyone else then. And I think as a podcast, at least what we strive for, the you know, is yeah. what we're we, what we are living into as a as a kind of a mission is is the same thing. And I I know that I find in some of our conversations, I'm always looking for uh, often looking for the emotional connection and and where this show takes me emotionally. And I I try to bring that to our conversation in a way that reaches you as a listener. I think we can talk about. They coined it as something that has, you know, that 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 has its own weight. I, I mean, I'm I'm proud of what we're doing. We consciously want to create a discussion that's worthy of the show that we're talking about. You know, you don't yeah. you, you don't want to, um, you know, I have a Gilligan's Island podcast that I go <laughs> deep, you know, into some of the ins and outs of that show, but it's different. You know, it's not the same as this. Matt Badman's almost you the know. themes are very. Um, <laughs> that's how we got. I mean, there's seven How we got where people. we are as a country and <laughs> on an island. It's they're very similar that way, but uh, yes, an American exactly. tune. Let's sit right back and we're here. <laughs> to, right. I mean, either either way you want to go. go. <laughs> the arrangements, my favorite band, uh, was written by Andrew Colville and Matthew Weiner, directed by Michael Uppendahl. The original air date was September sixth, two thousand. September sixth. 2009, and it takes place over three days in June, three non-consecutive days from June 3rd to 11th. Jesus Christ. Okay. What did it, I got it. Three separate days between June 3rd and June 11th. We, could, we, 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 couldn't, we couldn't leave that unspecified <laughs> uh, on the blog. Right? Okay, no, that's good. Nope. Three non-consecutive days from June 3rd to June 11th, 1963. There we are. Alrighty. All right. So this is the episode. Well, Gene dies, so that's sort of the central piece of plot. But, but before he, that, Sally goes. Sally driving. has a neat little experience uh, driving the Lincoln. That's a great looking car, by the way. The Lincoln down Bullet Park Road. Pete has a friend, Ho Ho, who brings the high lie account to high lie account 
to Sterling Cooper. Ho ho and um, the high lie. Peggy wants to get an apartment in Manhattan, and Kitty discovers that Sal is gay. That's a lot. Or something. She certainly discovers something. I think she knows just what she's discovering. <laughs> the look, look on her face, I think, is awfully specific. Here's what I don't know about that. And we, may, we might as well, let's just jump into that, because it's just an incredible, it's an incredible scene. Amazing scene. I mean, you never forget it. <laughs> no. Where I leave it as a wonder is... Look, she saw something, but I don't know, you don't know who is exposed to what. Peggy, two years earlier, was pregnant and didn't know she was pregnant. Mm -hmm. And you kind of go, really? Who does that? But people do that. So what we don't know about Kitty is, does she have a vocabulary? And I don't just mean the words for, I mean, does she know about the presence of? I know what you're saying. It's an emotional vocabulary. Yeah. You know, how naive is she? She sure as shit saw something. You know, she saw what was there. She just, she saw the truth. She just may not understand what the truth is. What she saw was, I don't know this person, and this person is something I don't recognize. That's a fair question. But it was also an unambiguous moment. Yes, correct. You know, there's confusion, there's levels of knowing and understanding, and how much did she know, know, or just kind of see it? Right, but she 100% knew she barely wanted to touch him. What I saw actually this time was, you know, she was kind of frozen, and then he, he pulls her close to her, and she sort of has to do that, but what she really wanted to do was not only get away from him, but at the very least, cover up. That's a tough one. I mean, there's not much more to say about that scene. It was inc- it was exquisitely acted oh, by the two of them. really amazing. Again, Kitty Romano, played by Sarah Drew, her face is so expressive and her acting is so clean that you just see every emotion right on her face and every she's responding and in the moment and just beautiful and, and phenomenal to watch that a scene like this is like her tour de force, right? Because she has to, in real time, go from one reality to another, quite literally, in her mind. And trying to hide that. She's in horror and she's trying to hide that horror as she's processing whatever it is she's processing, you know, to to where, to what degree. Her whole world just changed and it, you can Forever. see it on her face and it's yeah. something to watch. And and while we're and while we're at it, the scene that you're right, there's not too much too much else to to dive into with, between the two of them, but the the playing of the of the ad that Sal produces, I think, is a fascinating scene also now with the client because, you know, Sal did his job. But at the end of the day, I just, I just love the button that, that I guess it was Roger puts on it when they're trying to, Why, what was it? It didn't work. How could, she's not in Margaret, is what he says. That's it. That's the whole thing. Yeah. I created a, a perfect rendition of the Mona Lisa. What happened? Well, you're not Da Vinci. This is what the problem is. And know? there's already a Mona Lisa. So. Well, yeah, that, that. But in this case, it was a commercial. It was meant to be a commercial project. So people were intended to see that it was a replicate. But it was meant to be fun and light and just as in, enjoyable. And it just wasn't. And all it was was less than. A hundred percent. Very much less than. Uh, yet on paper, exactly what they asked for. Which Peggy enjoyed, by the way, enjoyed that they. That I mean, didn't work. <laughs> Peggy gave Don a look <laughs> while biting her. I told you so. Tongue. It was unnecessary to say. It was very obvious. But this was the echo of the other agency plot. The ho ho and highlight plot is what do you do when a client? And this is a dilemma that happens over and over in agency life every day. What do you do when the client wants something that you? don't want. I mean, you know, Ho-Ho even said it. Let's go, you know, let's have lunch and I'm going to give you taglines. It's like, oh God, no, please don't. Like, but uh, that's what you, that's what you paid us that million dollars for. Like, what are you doing? 
That's right. It is an echo of of the ho ho piece, but but it, at the same time, that look was a callback to remember. I wanted to take them in a different direction, and the whole thing was give them what you can talk to them like that after they're a client kind of thing. It's it's it, there's just so much going on swirling around the, the the conference room where that takes place. So great piece all around with uh, with patio. So I want to I want to say overall about this episode it is a brilliant piece of art that I do not care for as a whole. I think the main themes that that we're going to get into I mean there's it's very much about fathers, <laughs> you know, where love among the ruins is about daughters. This is about fathers. You're right. This is not parents and children. This is very specifically about fathers. But it was a very uncomfortable episode in almost every in almost every way. The truth is that Boy, I just don't like being with Gene. Neither does Don. You and Don have that in common, <laughs> not liking to be with Gene. You know, you're watching he, him and Sally, and clearly Sally will treasure him forever. And and I bet you that this whole, um, the child being there for when the grandfather dies, I bet it's somebody's story in yeah. that writer's room. That felt very specific. Clearly, Sally will have lifelong memories of this wonderful relationship with mm. her grandfather. I mean, I just can't stand, I can't stand being around him. I'm, I am so with Don on this. Gene with the knife. From the driving scene, I was like, oh my God, oh my yeah. God. I, had for, like, I, had, I hadn't quite forgotten, but it's just, it horrifies me. I don't think Gene was a day on the day at the beach on his best day in life, but <laughs> this, is, no. this is a challenge for everybody. Which, look, you take a parent in, you, you're going to get, especially I think someone who, you know, grew up in the first half of the century. I mean, that's just, <laughs> you're t- dealing with, there's a lo- lot of change that's gone on for that guy to experience that he's probably not caught up with. And boy, does he not like Betty. And that's the, yeah. that was there. I mean, I know that that's a broad stroke there that I just threw on there, but the way he speaks about her to Sally, Sally yeah. you know, you can do things. I know your mother, just don't listen to your mother when she says you can't, right? And it was a little, what was that? You know, there's a lot swirling there too. We see Betty's version of her relationship with her father and her mother for that matter, but entirely Betty's view. And in Betty's view, I'm your little girl. I want to, you know, she beams when he says stuff, you know, other other scenes that we've seen them together. She just beams at him when he's talking and seems in control of things the way she wants to remember him. Perhaps that's not a very realistic view of the person, the man he was, the father he was, the person he was around her. Who knows? But you can see there's a gap there, perhaps between the way she, you know, romanticizes their relationship and he perhaps never did. But, but we don't know because he's also got problems with his his memory and his and his filter dementia affects every part of you so there's some of it we can infer and some that we'll never know that's an unknowable about that you know you brought up her view one of the things that i noticed in this episode is from storyline to storyline whose view is sometimes unclear or sometimes unusual for example you've got this scene with with Jean and Betty discussing the arrangements and Betty doesn't want to and all of this but that storyline really does end up being Sally's view and Don's view so a lot of times in this episode Don's just sort of around some of these things. And he, you know, back in the office and the highlight thing and raises his hand. He says, hey, me, you know, I got a I got a thought here. And everybody's sort of ignoring him. And he's almost he's almost like Sally. He's almost like the little kid that nobody's listening to. 
and saying that this is this is a bad idea. This is, you know, or whatever he's in the moment that he's saying, but it's definitely his view. Well, I think the point of view in general that the narrative takes us through changes, uh, both in terms of Jean's presence at the house, right? We see it through Sally's eyes, through Bobby's eyes, through Betty's eyes, and a little bit through Don's eyes, right? When he's sitting in the chair and and Jean and Bobby are um, going through his uh, World War One memento box. Wild. Love that. Love the, <laughs> the dead man's hat and all that. Yeah. See, that's it. I just don't love that. Oh, it's uncomfortable as hell, but it's wonderful. But that's through Don's eyes, right? I mean, that's the, the thing. I'm watching that scene going, this is, Dan loves this. <laughs> <laughs> and I just, I just, I just didn't enjoy, I was like, oh, just make it stop. Wonderful how, how uncomfortable yes. it is. <laughs> Except it wasn't wonderful. And likewise, right? We see Pete bringing in this Hylai Koho character where everybody sees it one way. Don walks in, has a different, but in that case, Don is listened to, right? Because they end up having the meeting with the father to get his perspective yes. and kind of get the blessing, um, which they do in a weird way. There's a lot of that. And I would say an exception to the the father thing is Peggy and her mom, because that's a big thing too. What I love about this episode, and the reason why I'm, I loved it more than I remember it, was, you know, I'm big on this sort of like the larger themes versus the minor plot points. And I find the episodes I really love about Mad Men are the ones where there's a lot of both, where they they somehow craft this 44 minutes or whatever of action with big, huge, sweeping, thematic things that they take those brushstrokes and little plot things that move it along and keep the train on the tracks. And this had a lot of that, right? Because you've got the Gene plot, right? That's been building. He's moving in. How's that going to work? He's got dementia. It's, it's roiling up the house and blah, blah, blah. But then you've got these these much larger issues of relationships. And I think central to that is the the scenes with the kids, with Sally and Bobby. But let's let's talk about Ho-Ho. <laughs> I don't remember being able to identify with the father-son element of the ho-ho thing when I saw it years ago. Just, I want to ask you a one question. Hmm. Do you remember when High Lie was a thing? <laughs> Vaguely. I'm a 70s baby. Yeah, I mean, me too. It was a thing. I mean, it was never bigger than baseball. It, there was an absolute international push for High Lie. Uh, and it is a South American thing in Miami, and it was a natural sort of entry point. I'm sure we have listeners who don't know that it had a moment. No, that is that is drawn from real real stuff. That is historical fiction. The way that they're presenting it, his timing was correct. He said, "What in seven years or eight years or whatever?" He said, "Well, yep, that's what happened." And my memories of it was it's sort of dying ember kind of because it, it never really took off. So, but but it was a thing. It was it was like around it was there was like gambling around. I don't even remember. But I but also this time what hit me? You just said there was a global push. I don't know if that's true or if this was just pure appropriation. <laughs> like that's what hit me this time. Like oh shit. Listen, I think the American sports thing, right, which has been the last almost hundred years, is incredibly insular. So things don't just seep their way in from the outside. We've got baseball. We've got basketball. We've got American football. If something's going to make its way in, it's there's a push. There's a lot of money and a lot going on behind it. Talk to anyone who's a soccer fan. Yeah, so I, I think it was international and I think it was intentional and it just fucking died out because Americans are insular. <laughs> so it goes back to C, C right, point A. Right. Um, but it was fascinating to watch because you know in, in that wonderful Mad Men way that you are watching a total idiot at work here. I loved when Paul um, bit his tongue this time. <laughs> right. There was some restraint. Yeah. He was about to do it again, and he didn't. And Pete was like, all right, good. Well, well everybody learns. <laughs> 
<laughs> so it was fun to just watch that and the great writing around it and this brat, this this ho-ho. And, and, and there's no way to tell at that point where it's going. But you see you see instantly from the way that they, they come out of that meeting that Don and Lane, as the kind of the older senior members of, of that, are, are viewing it very differently. And Lane is you know, aggressive and let's get every penny in his pocket. And Don, you know, has that great line about, you know, I saw a loaf of bread fall off a truck during the depression. It was more, more dignified. (laughs) And we can kind of pair this part with the dinner that takes place where Don is trying to just be honest with this kid. And this is after the discussion with the father and, you know, Don's, Don's the hobo and came from nothing and didn't grow up with a, with a, with a nickel. I think he looks at someone like Ho-Ho and says, you're going to lose all your money, kid. You know, you're going to you protect what you have. You know, this might not be it. You know, and Ho-Ho is not going to listen to him. And the old man's not going to run out of money. That whole sequence of the first meeting, how Don views it, the meeting with the father, and then the dinner, I think are, are a really fascinating sequence. That talk with Horace Sr., it was another kind of an arrangement flag, similar to Betty and her dad sitting down. It's like, look, this kid's got to make his own mistake. He's mm. he's going to do it with someone else. Might as well be here. You know, in that whole, I don't remember the whole dialogue. It was so chilling what he said. It was like, I'm going to just let little Frankenstein go do his little thing. I don't know. Ho-ho to me was Donald Trump Jr. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, still, still trying to get daddy's... Uh, love. Oh yeah, no. We learned that. We learned right that that this is all about his father's love, and I'm gonna make something of myself. But it's but it's also like, what if you just don't have the brains to do it? <laughs> what if you just don't have, you don't have the old man's jump shot? What if this is a terrible idea because because you don't have good ones? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but you have the money and the arrogance to not care. <laughs> The final zinger of, if this doesn't work, agency, it's your fault. <laughs> right, exactly. There's your Donald Trump Jr. line. Right? That's exactly. right. And then, and I think that was before the viewing of the patio ad, if, I, if I'm not mistaken. You know, and then we see these guys own up to it. But at the same time, again, I, I don't know how agencies worked then. Today, you've been billing the whole time. You sell the ad up front and then they pay you to make it. And if they don't use it, bad on them. So I don't know what happens financially in this scenario, but it wasn't pretty. The patio thing. Yeah, I think that was that was a commissioned piece, right? Here's exactly what we want you to do for us. We need you to produce this. We're not kind of asking for your creative opinion necessarily, but we we want X. And then I think they were probably maybe because it's PepsiCo and they're they're a lot more sophisticated marketers than Hoho and and his his whatever. They did own up to it and they were just like, yeah, we swing and a miss. It's okay. Not your fault. And that was gracious. It was gracious-ish. It didn't feel great. It didn't feel like, guys, guys, we're sorry. This was our bad. It sure wasn't that. No, they didn't fall on the sword, but they they didn't um they didn't throw anybody under the bus either. No, but I felt a little Mm, you guys just did this bad thing. You might have wanted to I do, guess it was you know, somehow 
When you're a powerful client, when you're PepsiCo and you're saying exactly what you want and do not interfere with me, and then you're just as powerful on the other side saying, why the fuck didn't you interfere with me? Right? Like there's a little edge of that. In reality, not every client is so fucked up like that to tell you exactly what they want. Then when you deliver it, they'll act like it was your idea. And why did you do this? Yeah. They didn't throw anybody under the bus. That said, they didn't have any recommendations. Oh, it's a little too this or it's a little, it was just like, yeah, no, we, we can afford to pay for these mistakes all day long and not not lose our job. So it's really something. We'll take another swing some other time. But yeah, that that relationship between Ho Ho and his dad mm. is the kernel of the whole thing. And I and I do think that these themes of how we honor our parents, how we want to be remembered by our children. It's interesting you you say this relationship between Ho Ho and his dad. We don't see them together ever. No, it's both of their individual perspectives on the same relationship. And Ho Ho's feeling you you begin to empathize with this kid just a moment over that dinner when he's waxing, you know, poetic about what he wants to do for his dad. And then he goes and steps on it with that stupid thing about it's your fault if it doesn't succeed, guys. So it's it's um He's petulant. He's not, he doesn't know what he doesn't know. But he does know how to make people pay for his mistakes. That was the Donald Trump Jr. part. <laughs> for sure. But it, there's a kernel of something genuine there. It just has nothing to do with high lie. <laughs> right. I want to make, I want to make something. <laughs> right. He could have applied it into, I want to make something. And this is, I, this is as good as anything to, to try and do that with. But that is how rich families think. I'm going to give my dad a team. I'm going to give my dad a this. I'm going to give my dad a that. You know, I'm going to show him that I'm not a schmuck, right? The power that comes with that kind of money, Ho-Ho doesn't even, not that he would have the self, the introspection to, to think about this, but Ho-Ho doesn't perceive how bullying and manipulative this is. I'm going to buy my way into a good idea and I'm giving you so much money, there's nothing you can do or say about it. And just, you know, again, icing on the cake, it's your fault if it doesn't go well. Like all of that comes with, I can throw any amount of money at you and make you do what I want. Well, it's about margin of error. It's about margin of error. You know, if you're, if you're, if you have the biggest stack of chips at the poker table, you can buy your way out of bad calls. You can buy your way out of hands that you shouldn't be in. And the other guy has to eat it if he doesn't have as big a stack of chips as you do. Whereas if you're starting with nothing, if you're an underdog in life, you have no margin of error. You're not going to come up with this stupid highlight idea. And all the money it takes and to, to waste on the way to the slim chance that something's going to click. What that entitlement and all that money, frankly, buys you is margin of error. Same with Pepsi, right? We can swing and a miss all day long. We've got margin of error. Hey, we tried. Thanks. We'll, we'll, we'll come back around maybe whenever. That's what it buys you is, is not having to be right all the time. Whereas Don's going to take a swing at being in the creative end of the advertising business. If he missed going back to Anna and I'm going to go from being a car salesman, I'm going to meet Roger Sterling and the Furrier, blah, blah, blah. You know, he has no margin of error. Whereas Ho-Ho, I could fuck up 20 times and I'm still going to be okay. And you know, let's just throw Sal in there. Yeah, there's another one, right? The unsung plot of this episode is Sal directing, Sal doing a great job having all those nerves that Don Draper has when he can't think of an idea and taking on something new. and Pinch hitting. I'll talk about 30-something from time to time, and for whatever reason, it was on my mind today. And 30-something is my kind of all-time favorite television show and is also- Miles Drentel. Miles Drentel. It's also centered around an ad agency. <laughs> and I, I don't often think about that comparison that these, because they are, they are so nothing alike. Right. <laughs> but toward the end of the, of the series, Elliot, the art director, does go on to direct commercials. So it was a fun, right. for me, it was a fun little reminder. His first one didn't go so well, if I remember. It correctly. was a train wreck. Um, <laughs> 
Uh, it might have been about a train, actually. I don't remember. No, it was about Philadelphia. But anyway, yeah, it was it was really nice to see because you couldn't tell, you know, you were so caught up in many other things that were happening both around Sal and around the agency. But the truth is, it was a one shot. It was a one take. Mm-hmm. It did come off beautiful. It was perfect. And the fact that in all this mess, Don, who, you know, doesn't matter what the ages are in that moment, Don was dad saying mm-hmm. to Salvador, who is crushed about everything, about his own panic and having no idea that he did a great job, you know, saying home run ballerina. And that's how things happen, right? It's Harry Crane inventing the TV department. It's Sal becoming yeah. a TV director. There's a lot of true life uh, ways that those things happen. Awesome, uh, awesome way to, to put that together. We should talk about Peggy a little yes, bit. Yes, please. Now, this part <laughs> I liked. <laughs> yeah, man, oh, man. And um, Catherine Olsen, that, the matriarch. Your favorite. Ah, she is my favorite. You know, she's living with Anita now, so they Peggy's visiting and blah blah blah. But the scene in in uh, in Anita's place where they're talking about because you know it's a big deal for for Peggy to be contemplating a move to Manhattan, right? That is, you may as well move to Mars. So she knows it's going to be a big deal, and she knows her mom too. And over the course of I guess two scenes, tells her sister. They sit down and they tell the mother, and Catherine Olsen reacts. Entirely the way they had wow. expected. I mean, cruel. Cruel, cruel. We, but we've seen this character. That's who she is. Absolutely. She, it's not superficial. It's no. not. Yeah. It's not throwaway lines or like, oh, we're going to give her a zinger here. It's, it's the, this, this woman is so three dimensional, both in the way she's written and Myra Turley's amazing, amazing acting. So you get this sense of someone who, really can't be talked into or out of anything. Accuses everyone of of scheming, right? You got me the TV, so I wouldn't, you know, be upset about this. You're going to get raped, she says. Peggy, it's come here. Brutal. Check behind <laughs> me. Brutal. Pull that knife out of my back. I mean, she just ever like she really Was that in this no, episode? No, it was not. Oh, okay. I guess that was me doing a little improv. <laughs> Cuz I think she says that at one point. I mean, she might as well, right? Maybe. Yeah. Maybe she does. It's spot on. And it's old school, man. It's Brooklyn is Brooklyn's friggin' Nebraska in a lot of ways. (laughs) It just is. You wonder how she got out of the house as a single girl at all, how she ever got into that first apartment. I mean, you don't wonder. You now know. Right. Well, I think the first apartment was like across the street or something. And then she's like slowly been moving (laughs) closer and closer to Manhattan. But here's the thing. And this is, you know, we talked about this a couple different times about God, what what Peggy really has. And this is this whole second viewing here for me is, is this is a huge enlightenment really feeling and understanding and empathizing with what Peggy Olson has to do to get where she needs to go, what she has to endure to to have the life she wants to have. She trips up, she makes mistakes, she fucks it up, she doesn't listen, she has to be told 10 times certain things, but her eye is so on the ball of what she needs to do that her mom saying this does not crush her. She's she is ready to endure whatever it takes. To go and and these are just these small little hometown kitchen table moments that can be the hardest the the, the deepest cuts is that is where that happens so the money she's gonna figure out but dealing with her mom is another story well she's not doing too bad with money she can buy a TV you know she doesn't spend on herself she scrimps she saves she's figuring everything out my favorite line was Anita saying well that wasn't so bad <laughs> that wasn't so bad really. She's been through a lot of change lately. The Holy Father dying, that was very hard on her. And I'm thinking, 
what did happen when she moved out, you know, that first time. Like, I really, how did she get out of that apartment? Like, it must have been the same thing. You'll get raped, but worse, <laughs> because this wasn't so bad. You'll get raped. It was so violent, a, a thing to say. And I get it's, you don't listen to your mother. You don't be loyal. Only horrible things will happen. How dare mm -hmm. you? I mean, it's, it's Fiddler on the Roof. How dare you break <laughs> really? with tradition? So how it went well per Anita is she didn't say you're dead to me and mean it. And she did turn the television on. That's right. Because listen, Catherine Olson lives a life with the parishioners in her church and that whatever square blocks around her home in the radius that she congregates and goes to the store and shops and blah, blah, blah. That's the whole life. That's it. That, it does not go beyond that really at all. And you've got your two daughters and your husband passed away young and that's it. That's what you've set up. It does not go beyond that. So when shit like this happens, oh, I got to explain it to my friends. I got to explain to the church. I got to talk about it. We've already heard her. You know, why aren't you at church? And someone's always asking for you. It's a nightmare for someone like Peggy. So yeah, th this is that three-dimensional element that that Catherine Olsen is, is responding to. You know, some of it seemed sort of pure with, you know, is there a guy, right? And then it comes in, why should I believe anything you say? You're the one who had a baby. Let's let's never forget you had a baby. You slut. It's underlying all this. You <laughs> whore. <laughs> you know? That's you right. betrayer, you sinner, you disappointment. It's all right there. I wonder from the writer's standpoint how close they came cuz Spoiler alert, there's lots of instances where Peggy has to like break news to her mom over, <laughs> over the course of this series. <laughs> this is not a, a one and done. So I really wonder how close the writers came to having those words come out of Catherine's mouth. Because everything's right under the surface with Yeah, her. it was quite quite a dance with the back and the forth of it and the push and the pull of Yeah, um, and it was raw without her ever going there. It was raw enough. Imagine how much raw it could have more raw it could have been uh without inventing too much backstory there, right? It's all it's all there if we want if they wanted to scratch the surface. But she'll she won't. She'll never speak of it. She's coming up with ways to lord it over her without ever speaking of it. She might call her a whore, but she would never actually refer to what happened. I don't think. But that's my curiosity: is how close did they think of? Maybe they had that as a line that Catherine does not cross, but seems to cross <laughs> lines all the time that most of us wouldn't. She's a bit of a line crosser. And so Peggy's dealing with that at home and at work. It's it's scarcely better, oh although more entertaining. This prank was brilliant. Oh my god, Lois and the boys. <laughs> it's really good, um, and Lois did a great job. And the visual of that. I love the visual of that. I love her on the right. phone with all the guys around her. And it's just incredible. Right. But then also the Joan scene. This is kind of another under the radar life lesson from Joan, right? Yeah. This is one of my favorite moments. What was Joan's motivation this time? There was at least a tinge of envy for her old life. But that wasn't the that wasn't the main driver. I want to read the tone and read the two ads. <laughs> Peggy's version is clean, responsible, considerate. I have some nice furniture and a small television. It reads like the stage directions from an Ibsen play is what Joan says. <laughs> Joan says, yeah. And then Joan's version, fun-loving girl, responsible, sometimes, likes to laugh, lives to love, seeks a size six for city living and general gallivanting. No dull moments or dull men tolerated. I mean. It's like a Helen Gurley Brown uh, <laughs> book or something. But that's Joan. But Peggy's great because she doesn't 
push Joan away. No. Which is what she's done a hundred times already and learning not to do. Joan, help Joan's me. Joan's right more than she's wrong. And I think Peggy also hears it and immediately recognizes, oh, geez. This is good marketing copy. I'm the writer and Joan's out writing me. And I think her competitiveness drives her to do a better job. But I think she also recognizes that Joan just came up with that, you know, the way Peggy can come up with great stuff if it's for, uh, you know, a client. She doesn't think of herself as her own client. As somebody who's done plenty of marketing copy and worked with other great, mar- you know, marketers, who it's it's the hardest thing to do your own thing. You know, I got to run my resume well, yeah. by someone else. I've got to run this by somebody else. I, I, you know, when I'm promoting me, it's the hardest thing. And especially on a personal, actually, my my uh, <clears throat> my online presence is in, in that <laughs> vein is just fine. I don't I don't have any qualms about that. But you said her competitive side. I don't see it as competitive. I don't know what she'd be competing with, but she definitely recognized it. She she just heard it and she went, oh shit, that's very good. <laughs> yeah. When Joan said it was awful, she's like, what? I proofread it. Everything's it's so grammatically funny. correct. You know? like, <laughs> and it's like, no, you're, you have no voice. And I think what Peggy recognized was Joan immediately put a, a wonderful, depending on how you look at it, a more favorable voice to the same mission that Peggy's has no voice. And I think as a writer, Peggy goes, I didn't think of this as a creative writing assignment when in fact it's entirely a creative writing assignment. All right, let's go for a break. Break time. I think so. And then come, come back and keep it going. Jean dies. What? Jean dies at the A&P. Was it at the A&P? It was at the A&P because because earlier, who mentioned A&S? Somebody else mentioned A&S. I can't remember who now. I was like, nice. Abraham and Strauss was very specific. And I just noticed when they said A&P, that's two two stores that does. I think the A&P might be gone too as of now. It wasn't gone then, but I think all the A&Ps are gone or most of them. Yeah, like very recently. So yeah. the only thing I don't know is if is it fully gone or is it just regionally not here, but it's, I, think I think it, it might, might be, be gone. gone. Yeah. Anyway, there's a dead man at the A&P. <laughs> A&S was in Paramus Park all those years. It was yes. A&S and Sears, and now I guess it's Macy's and I don't know. I think the Sears in Livingston is a um, vaccine megasite <laughs> right now. It's been a minute since I've been to a mall. Anyway, Jean's dead in the A&P. Yeah, in aisle seven, I think. What do you want to do with the body? <laughs> and of course, Betty's reaction is to tenderly reach out to her daughter and bring That's her right. inside and then slam the door. Oh, God. Unbelievable. <laughs> it's unbelievable. <laughs> Betty Draper. But this is a lead up, right? It's not even the moment. It's how we got here. Because for the past couple of episodes, we've seen some really tender moments with with Sally and Jean. Genuinely tender. And and again, the quality of the writing, there's not a false moment between them. You know, these two. I would absolutely love to know the relationship between the two actors, just because that's the kind of thing that gets a lot of time and attention in rehearsals and things to make sure that that it plays right. Well, especially when when you're working with a little kid. And, you know, I, I meant to mention this last time. This is around the time that I met her. We met those kids this In season. In season three, yeah. You know, a little while after this. And she, I will just say again, she was terrific. You know, we're chatting with her and we're like, who's your... I don't remember. She talked about music and we're like, who's your, who's your favorite musician? And she's like, I love Nina Simone. <laughs> we were like, what? <laughs> yeah. And she, I mean, she was just, she was just fabulous and An old soul. present and cool and yeah. not precocious, just cool. You know, I just had this thought about these scenes. I, I know what it is because earlier I brought up the view and you, how you're really seeing it through Sally's view. Mm. 
but it occurs to me, you're very present to, as you're watching this, the memories that are being made. And I, you know, people talk all the time about making memories and I kind of hate that. It's like, can you just enjoy it now? Right. Right. But in this episode of television, and sometimes you do need to remember it's television and television and film is dreamlike. I was reminded of when Melinda McGraw said that she approaches roles as though the person was dead (laughs) and she was playing them afterward. And there was something about the way this was filmed that felt like you were looking like it was... um, To Kill a Mockingbird with little Sally Draper as a woman narrating and looking back at this. It was so built for the nostalgia of the moment, you know, side to side with the presence of the moment. Yeah, you can project that onto it and you'd be totally within bounds to do that. What struck me is that if you look at the types of moments that we're talking about, Sally reading to her grandfather, Sally's grandfather putting salt on his chocolate ice cream and sharing it with, you know, that whole thing with her. I sort of want to try that. Putting her in the front, in the driver's seat and, and tapping the gas and going down the street. It's easy enough today to look at everything and just see how curated everything is. Whether it's social media, that's one level, but it's also everything's a play date and everything's a lesson and a this and a that. These were completely uncurated moments. These were mm. just genuine things. Bobby, Bobby with the hat, Bobby with the knife. Yeah. Shit you don't want to be, you wouldn't Complete be curating. D- irresponsible and dangerous, all, uh, th- though they were. Um, not everything ended with an eye getting popped out, but they were so naturally, that's what I mean, the writing was just, you could tell how much care went into these moments because it was kind of like, what would happen between, you know, a seven-year-old girl perhaps and her grandfather who came to live with them the last months of his life? What would that be like for her if we want to, if we want to indicate what the bond is between these two characters? What would those things, oh, they'd grab a tub of chocolate ice cream and do a thing like that, right? I'm getting it now that it was specifically in this episode because you go back to the episode with the thing with the money. She'll probably remember that, right? Mm. But this episode, it was like a bee going from flower to flower. Yeah. And you know that these are the flowers that she will remember. These 100%. are her, It's like, these are her memories. With with Bobby, you're not sure. Bobby's going to probably remember the hat, but is he going to remember the knives? I don't know. That was Don really looking at that. But this was specifically Sally's you know, key moments of those last months of her grandfather's life. And she will never, and now I'm choking up, And even though I can't stand this guy because it was beautiful for her. I mean, they are the things that you will look back on. He had me drive down the street. What kind of a, kind of a crazy person was this? But I loved it. I had this smile on my face and I felt so great doing it. And it was the, who doesn't remember the first time behind a wheel, whatever age you are. Well, she already smokes. (laughs) <laughs> she started, <laughs> <This> right. fucking kid <laughs> exactly she's gonna go uh land land an account at sterling cooper next <laughs> but yeah there's this quality to them that rings just true from every angle yeah, realistic right. from every angle that makes it so rich to to experience through her eyes um and bobby too that you know my grandfather whipped out this box and i didn't know what the hell this well, was blood in this hat and it was just creeping me out but <laughs> my dad was hated it but i loved it that's it, man. That That's what it's all about. Again, uncurated, very natural. And when Jean dies, again, very realistic, right? I was waiting to be picked up from school and ballet class and my mom came and why not and blah, blah, blah. And it hits us the way it hits Sally, I think, because we're seeing all these moments and all this tenderness. Also that moment, by the way, when he says, oh, your mom's coming with the with the chocolate ice cream. Beautiful moment. I wanted to bring something up about that thing. I'm so glad you reminded me. This was so subtle. It went from the scene of Lois and the practical joke (laughs) to 
that kind of opened with Sally saying, are you just joking? Like it was almost the first thought in that next scene. And it was super subtle, super subtle in the script, but it was, it was there. It was, it was really nice. But now we feel for Sally, right? The, the, the camera kind of lingers on her a little bit and we just feel the depth of how confusing it all is. And of course, Betty not thinking a moment about Uh her daughter, you know, now that William's over and what Trudy or Judy? This Trudy one, or this one's Judy. Judy. Yeah. Judy. There's two Judys and a Trudy. Yeah. <laughs> Again, saying the perfect thing. She, he's with the mom. Eugene Hofstadt, number two. What does that mean? There were two Eugene Hofstads at his bank. So he had to be called Eugene Hofstadt, number two. Well, he's with Ruth now. I hope so. Once he asked, what's going to happen when I get to heaven and I have two wives? Knowing Gloria, I don't think that's going to be a problem. (laughs) So he did marry Gloria? There was a wedding? I guess he married Gloria. That's crazy. This happens all the time. We didn't didn't see Joan get married all of a sudden. I know, but they never even referred to it. It was wacky. In fact, I actually thought we misspoke in the Gloria episode. I think at one point we referred to her as a wife. Yeah, someone said wife, and I'm like, is she a wife, really? thought she was a lady friend. I thought the same thing when I listened back. I was like, shit, I think we blew that. She was lady friend. Yeah, I I still find that a little weird. She got right in there and married him. Because time seems compressed, but maybe it was not. But I always have those thoughts. I always I always get pissed at, I mean, there's a lot of reasons to not like Titanic. Okay, don't at me. But one of them, I'm always like, I, I'm sorry. She dies and she goes back to Leo DiCaprio and not the man she was married to for 60 years or whatever. Come on. So I love that that, I love that, that little thought experiment got, got played. <laughs> so now everyone's in the house and that they're obviously chatting and someone cracks a joke and William laughs and- and Sally comes in and I don't know, you can't you can't not be moved by a child actor who can really act. Drama, like real drama. No, like fantastic. You know, Ricky Schroeder and the champ, you know, that kind of thing. Like just some real <laughs> some real chops. But yeah, she lets the parents have it in the way that that child would. And how perceptive and smart and articulate she is that she can communicate these things. And yeah, that little moment, that little look from Don, right? That was everything. Yeah. Betty's like, get out of here. You know, go watch TV. Um, We're not doing this. And Don, it was very subtle, but we got it. And Sally may or may not have gotten it. Oh, I think she did. Oh, I don't, I think without question, absolutely she did. Because I think they had eye contact. And I think Sally knows that her, her, her relationship with her dad is 180 degrees. I guess I also look at, you know, that Don, when Don finally does go to check on her and comfort her, she's already asleep in bed with the book, with her mm. grandfather's book, and right. that she doesn't receive that comfort. So she may have hoped that's what daddy meant, but she may have not confirmed it. No, she, I don't think she confirmed it. I don't think they sat down and talked about it. I mean, for herself, in her own mind, I don't know if she was fully comforted by the fact that he saw he saw her. Comforted, no, but it kind of... it. Got her to the next moment, yeah. right? Which is really the the point because everyone's there. And look, nowadays they would call that child over and give her a hug. I know this is hard for you, honey. Let's, you know, there would be an actual moment of of addressing it with the child. I think just think parents are more aware and adults are more aware of how that goes. Back then it was, you know, Betty was stuck in the 40s or something. And I think the look from Don was kind of like, you're right. 
Number one, I'm validating what you're saying. And at the same time, I don't know what the child version of this, but this isn't the hill you want to die on is what we, is what we would say now, right? <laughs> right. Adults would say, this right. is, you don't want to, you don't want this to be, this isn't something you can go further with. You've kind of said it all here. You, you've made your point. And he, and she did. I mean, she, she had her moment. And it was a real point. It was as much validation as Sally Draper in that moment was going to get from the entire universe, but she got it from her dad. That's how I look at it. What she says is, you're, you know, you're laughing. Don't you know that he exists? Now, the truth is that had they been the kind of humans to include their child in a conversation, what they would have said is, you know, honey, we are missing grandpa. And this is how we part of it is you remember people and you and you end up laughing about them. That's right. And the other piece of that is, don't you know that I exist? She is really they do know that Jean existed. It's her they don't see. And I just got that little dot connected. And it goes back to arrangements, right? It's how we think of our ancestors and those that came before and how we want the people that we leave behind to think of us. So it all, it all wraps up very much in in her outburst, but pleading. He's re, you know, he's never coming back. He was really here and he's never coming back. And that's I don't know that there's I don't know that there's three or four child actors on the planet who could deliver that those lines. She's gutted. And they are pulled together in the ways that adults understand how to pull themselves together. And, mm. and they're not even terrible to right at all to be pulled together. It is part of, you know, you can we can point fingers at what a bitch Betty is being. You mean the, and you all mean the of, adults around the table. But the adults around the table, but they're, you know, they're doing what they're doing. I mean, Betty cried and again, laughter happens. Um, they already know that he's not coming back. It's part of childhood is understanding death and what is there to laugh about, right? Yeah. She doesn't understand how she will go on knowing that he's never coming back. She just doesn't she doesn't think it's possible. And then goes right and watches uh, someone being burned up on TV. So How about that? That's where we that's how we know the dates, I'm sure. That my yeah, sister yeah, looked yeah, that yeah. one up. <laughs> right, exactly. But I think that's also another we can't exclude that from the list of memories, right? My grandfather, he came and lived with us and we just had so many great moments and I'll just always remember that time with this and I drove and I, and I'll never forget the night he died. I was really upset and nobody could hear me. And I was told to go watch the TV and I had to go watch this. The news was on and this guy was burning himself. What the fuck was that about? It is a common question these days on the on the Twitter. What's your first political memory, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, she's about to have a doozy this season. <laughs> Just spoiler. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> right? right? Early June 1963. Yeah. <laughs> the truth is it's this one for her. She's going to remember right. this one. Right. Not as political, but connected to another event, right? Yes. And, yes, you know, correct. worth worth mentioning, I'll just say, coming out of this Trump whatever thing, I won't call it an age of Trump, but what was the line? It was the newscaster in talking about this experience, this this monk And of course, it's a famous incident, and the pictures are famous. They talk about, he's reading the news, and he talks about the government of Vietnam and their supposed campaign of discrimination. Mm. And I'm like, I'm sure that was journalistically accurate and journalistically responsible to call it a supposed anything, because we're not Vietnamese, and what the fuck do we know? Okay. And the the government, by the way, that he's describing was entirely corrupt and was US-backed and Kennedy and all that kind of shit. But I'm thinking, you know, now we have these discussions about when do you call something a lie in public? When does the newspaper call someone untruthful or, you know, not based on fact and all these things that we've been literally living through day by day for the last four years, five years? I don't know. There's no connection to pull because this was, you know, done more than 10 years ago. But um, 
that of the moment, because I'm, I'm sure that was vintage footage and real copy that oh, yeah. was being written. We we live in as different a world now from 1963 as 1963 was to the 1900s. And yet. And yet, and yet it's yet. all the same That's shit. Right. And Shakespeare wrote about all of it anyway, so that was already 500 years ago. There was also, just going back to the other's plot line, was the, the little reference to uh, Kennedy and Joseph Kennedy and you know, that <laughs> right, that right. little line of corruption that gave us President yeah. Kennedy, right? No so, shit. Absolutely. <laughs> That's right. What was it? A picture of Joe, of uh, Joe Kennedy watching a highlight match or something. That was what he wanted. It's <laughs> that? great. Oh, boy. Yeah. Why do you do that? I got a soft tooth. It's right here in the back of my mouth. Grandpa. <laughs> it's getting harder to fool you. I got two spoons. Gene, in the car, smells oranges. Yes. Godfather fans, he smells oranges. I don't know the Godfather reference. Oh, fuck. But it is, isn't it a stroke thing? No. Uh, I don't know. I've, I've never heard that. Oh, I'm making that up? All right. It's a Godfather thing? When um, Vito Corleone first gets shot in the first Godfather, he is putting oranges in a paper bag. He's at the produce stand. And when he dies, and that's the early part of the movie, when he dies at, toward the end of the movie, he's cutting oranges with his grandson and they're playing in the in the garden in the backyard. He has the orange peel in his mouth. So oranges are a totem for death in the Godfather movies. So when he smells oranges. You could see how studied I am. Got yes, it. exactly. It's only greatest movie in the history of film. But she's eating the orange later, right, Betty? Or peaches. was it a peach? It was a peach. Okay, it was peaches. Sally asked for peaches and they sat in the back and they were probably not the highest quality. And not for nothing. I mean, the name has already been established, but then you get Peggy, you know, her mother calling her peaches and it's I, it was just, yeah, it was That's great. Right. Did you get pears? Okay. So we should take a break. That's it. We did it. We covered it. Jean is dead. We will uh, take a quick break and come back and talk about quotes. Dan, what's your quote? At dinner, Ho-Ho says... I have this image in my mind. It's his 75th birthday and I give him a team. So we talked about this a little bit earlier and it's, this isn't one of the quotes where I'm like, oh, what a snappy line I have to, that's my quote. This is just more about what's swirling around in this episode of, of what we leave, what we give, what we take, what we, you know, and this relationship between, uh, you've said fathers and sons. Or father, ice fathers. Yeah. And this, I think, is like the heart of it because again, it's like... <laughs> It's not really yours to give, Ho-Ho, just yet. And you, I know you've got these grand plans, but <laughs> what you think is the gift to your father might be just spending a shit ton of his money and not, and not, really, not really building anything. But we'll see how that works out. So a <laughs> lot wrapped up in that line for me, but I, just, I love what it represents within this episode. I want them all in color. C CBS doesn't have color. <laughs> That's right. Fine. All right. Then. <laughs> <laughs> right. Now let's talk radio. You have to take that the way it is, <laughs> which is a perfect, a perfect Don rejoinder. Just yes. amazing. So Jesus, I don't even remember which of the scenes. I believe it's Peggy first discussing with Anita her plans to move to Manhattan. And Anita says something to the effect of, you know, like one of those girls. <laughs> and Peggy says with one of those confidence moments that you just you just get up and cheer. I am one of those girls. It's great. Now, why that that didn't just stand out to me. It's supposed to stand out. That's a line that you're supposed yeah. to have that reaction oh, yeah. to, right? It's not anything that you lose. But then you go on through the rest of the episode and then you get to the ad and you get to the Joan and you get to ultimately meeting the girl who's going to be the roommate whose name I don't remember, but I will at some point, but it won't be here on our podcast today. 
She's not Norwegian. She's not Norwegian. <laughs> she's she's Swedish. Swedish, yes, exactly. It's Peggy struggling back and forth, and Peg- Peggy knows who she is, but then she's not sure. Maybe I am that party girl. Maybe I can have fun with like normal girls, and she just she isn't. She isn't. She isn't. We've seen she her. She isn't. She was. I think she's. We've seen her make out at a party. We've seen her, yeah. you know, take a bite out of a burger. Like it's just that she's not frivolous in that way, and she's not a Helen Gurley Brown type of girl. No, no. It's just the tension that is Peggy between wanting to be normal and wanting what she wants, and there is there's a little crossover, <laughs> right? Yeah, there in is her a crossover, way, but it's it's tough. But when she's you know meeting with the roommate and trying to you know it's so she's so uncomfortable it's delicious with this girl who seems very nice by the way um but this tension is is she's still breathing the vapors of jones copywriting (laughs) you know so she knows she has to loosen up a little bit and in order to be a good roommate she has to you know, adjust in certain ways. That doesn't mean not being herself, but, you know, how do I loosen up? Where do I loosen? Do I loosen up now? Do I loosen up late? Like, it's just so, you know, overthinking and trying to fit in. And, and Peggy does not easily fit in. We've said this. So again, it's just that, it, it's that tension between <laughs> great the tension. confidence that comes with, I am one of those girls. And then the terror of, oh God, I am not one of these girls. And do I really have to live with her and live with, okay, I guess I'm doing the, all of that, right? Trying to sing into your hairbrush in the mirror, you know? <laughs> It's all yes. that's exactly what it is. I would also like to just give a mention to the the casual fat shaming of Jones ad. That's it. That's it. <laughs> Size six. Otherwise, I have to start a whole new podcast. So that's it. I just want to throw it out there, there and walk away. And Gene, <laughs> right? Gene uh, talks about Betty being oh overweight. Oh, my God. I mean. No one could say that that's not <laughs> entirely realistic. No, no. I, I Fat shaming exists. I'm just... I'm never going to not call it out. It's so. No, it's stunning when you hear it. Always a good time. All right, man, we did it. The arrangements. Listen, I liked it. You didn't. End of story. I'm not saying it's a weak episode even. I'm no, not, I know that, what That's saying. what's different. You know, it's not, not your taste. I'm not, it's, yeah. it's, it was just, there was not a lot of joy. And then there was, I just didn't want to. I just, I really, I just didn't want to be with. No, it was emotionally uncomfortable for a lot of the episodes. A lot of it, a lot of people not to like, and you know that was all. It's and it's a brilliantly constructed. It is piece of it's, art. The it's, quality is so fucking high. It's just not the painting I'm bringing home. That's all. Well, perhaps you'll like the fog better. I don't think so, but okay. <laughs> now that I'm probably more like you, like I appreciate it for how good the quality is, but it's not. I don't respond very much to to, to the fog. I haven't seen it since you know since its day. I recall it's a fascinating episode. I believe there's a Simpsons cameo. You'll have to look for it. One of the voice actors. Yes. Well, maybe listen for it because we don't know we don't know them as well by by visual as we do by sound. But there, I believe there's a Simpson in this episode. Hey, listen, it's been a long time, but that's a teaser if I have ever heard uh, one. <laughs> but it's a little foggy good, to me. Good stuff. All righty. Well, See? everyone, go listen to an American tune by Paul Simon mm. when you get a oh, moment. I'm gonna, go, I'm gonna cry. <laughs> you will, we will all have a good cry and then, good get, and then get vaccinated alrighty everybody thank you Talk see to you soon. next time Hey Coiners, we're so glad you're enjoying the show. One of the best ways to support us is to give us rave reviews on Apple Podcasts and to share us on social media. A great way to literally support us is at our Patreon, where we've got some extra content. Patreon.com slash theycoinditpod. If you're able, we love you either way. And we love your comments and your questions. Bring them on. Questions at theycoinditpod.com or find us on Instagram, Twitter, at TCI Mad Men Pod. We've got a lot more 
Mad Men to get to, and we can't wait. See you next episode.